You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Friends, it's so good to be here with you this morning. As Bethany just alluded to, uh, 20 years is a long time. I'm like, I'm getting old. Uh, Reality as a small relational network is actually 20 years old this summer, which is wild, and which means that my family, the Chaddocks, have known the Hillners for almost 20 years, so um, it's it's a joy and a privilege, and as she just mentioned, we spent years in different locations, LA for 10 years, five years in London before moving back to California just right after COVID and been in Ventura, and it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. We love you. I pray for you every week that God would bless you and provide for you as a church. And I'm thrilled to be a part of your series that you've been going through called The Miracles of Jesus. And in particular, the the text that that I've been given is one that is very near and dear to my heart. If you have a Bible, if you could open it to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And I'll be reading verses 21 through the end of the chapter, and though on the surface these are two stories about miraculous healing underneath the surface, I believe it's really about the healing of fear. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. I'll read the text and then we'll pray together once more and just invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, Her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you as disciples answers, and yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. 
When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you that every person in this room matters to you. You are aware of and you are concerned with everything going on in our lives and in our hearts. And I ask this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak into those cares and those concerns and the worries and the fears and that we would experience your healing, that we would experience your power, that we would experience your love. And for any here this morning who do not yet know you, I pray that today they would. We ask all this in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Well, I thought I'd start with uh, an awkward question. What is your worst fear? Don't answer out loud. <laughs> because I recently read a publication that summarized all of America's top worst fears. And at the very top, number one, yes, above clowns, although that was a strong contender, above snakes, deep waters, and fear of confined spaces. Some of you are like, ah, stop it. The number one fear every time that tops the list is the fear of public speaking. Fun for me. <laughs> it's horrible. The fear of saying the right thing or the wrong thing and making eye contact, but not too much because that's weird, and making sure people don't fall asleep. It's horrible. But psychologists believe, the article went on to say, that the reason that people's top worst fear is the fear of public speaking is because underneath people's worst fear is the fear of rejection. After all, on the whole range of difficult human experiences, we all know in some way, shape, or form that rejection is one of the worst. It's sort of a social death on top of all of our other fears. Because we know fear has layers. The fear of suffering often leads to the fear of rejection. I raise this because the two stories before us in the Gospel of Mark are in some ways a description of these fears. But don't worry. Because it also shows us how this fear can be healed. And so what we find and what makes this so beautiful to me is that instead of fear leading to further pain and suffering, Mark shows us how faith can lead to healing and acceptance. 
And that is what, friends, these stories are about. And it is in understanding them more deeply and what they tell us about faith that we, all of us in this room, we can experience healing for our fears. See, as you've been in the series on the miracles of Jesus, it's very clear that he is the Son of God bringing life to the dead, which is a coming attraction of what he will one day do when he makes all things new. And we see in these two stories that they are actually to be kept together. I like to think of them like a, a pair of headphones. To really hear the music, you need both earphones in because it's a message that comes to us in stereo. Or to give you the technical terms, the academics actually call this a Mark sandwich. Two stories combined together that proclaim a greater truth. They share one theme. And I want you to notice as we've just read the passage and as you have it open before you, there are striking similarities that I didn't even notice until several years back and I've read this story many times. Both are stories of women getting healed. In both, they are addressed as daughters. Both stories have scoffers. In both stories, they are ritually unclean. And in both stories, there is a similarity of years. The woman has suffered for as many years as this little girl has been alive. Twelve years. There are many similarities. But there are also differences. And I actually think that it is in the differences that some of the biggest lessons are learned. And like a sandwich, it's often defined by what is in the middle. So I just want to proclaim to you four things about Jesus that we learn from this text that can bring, even this morning, healing to our fears. So what is it about Jesus that brings healing? The first thing is this. Jesus enters into our desperation. He enters in to our suffering. One of the surprising things about this account to me is actually the level of detail and the level of intention from Jesus. It begins with this man named Jairus, a prominent man with wealth and standing in the community. And yet all that he has cannot deal with his fear, that of losing a child. And in verse 22, we're told that he falls at Jesus' feet and pleads. And right away, we learn that whatever you think of Jesus, whether you're new to Christian faith and you're here this, this morning exploring, or you've been a Christian for years, but maybe you found yourself growing a little jaded. You're like, great, we're going to talk about healing again this morning, but God hasn't healed me. So, like, what am I going to learn? Regardless of what we think of Jesus, he is not merely a public figure he is a compassionate Savior. He's not just there for his own ego. He's not like, oh, I love the crowds. And then someone comes to him with a personal request. He's like, can't you see I'm busy? Like the people are around me. Like I don't have time for an autograph. I need to move forward. But I want you to note, friends, that he is aware of, concerned with, and actually enters into our situation. He is not detached. He is not disinterested. And this is a small picture of the greater story of the gospel. 
When you come to, to Jesus with your problems, he's not like, really? Tim, you, are you kidding me? You like literally whine every day. Like, I'm running the world. I don't have time for this. That's often, we know that's not what scripture says, but that's often how we feel when we come to God with yet again another request. But notice from here, you are not a problem to be solved. You are a person to be loved. That is how Jesus sees it. And we see it particularly with this next woman in verses 25 to 29. We'll come back to Jar. To Jairus, but notice in verse 25, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Many people could resonate with her medical situation. But when she heard about Jesus, she came up from behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Notice the contrast. Jairus is named, but this woman is not. And though we don't know her name, we are given her story. She suffers physically. She suffers practically, even financially, but she also suffers socially. She's cast out of the community. She was determined as ritually unclean because of her suffering. So what was in her mind in this moment when she goes and she grabs the hem of, of his garment? Like, is it a bit of superstition? I mean, after all, in the minds of many people, the idea of power is something that can be managed. If I, if I just climb the ladder or if I say the, the, the right formula or do the right things, maybe I can kind of control this power. We don't know. But there was certainly something she knew about Jesus. He's a miracle worker. He's the best shot I have. And so she runs and she grabs the hem of his garment and we're told power went out. Now, I love this scene because if you're anything like me, many of us were so passive when it comes to wanting to experience change or transformation or, or healing. We don't get real with God. We're, we're not desperate enough for him to move. But this is a beautiful portrait of desperation. She doesn't care that she's an outcast. She doesn't care what other people think. She runs and she grabs the hem of his garment expecting God to move. And power went out. But here's what's interesting. That's not where the story ends. In fact, I would suggest to you that it's actually not the main point of the story. Power went out, but then Jesus says, who touched me? Followed by verse 31, which I actually find ridiculous. The disciples are like super sassy and sarcastic with Jesus. They're like, Jesus, you're in a crowd. And you're like, who touched me? But he looks around. He might have been content that this woman had experienced power. But that would stop short of what Jesus came to do. So the first thing that I want us to know this morning is that Jesus 
enters our desperation. He sees you and he's with you. But the second thing, the second truth that brings healing is this. Jesus draws us into relationship. He enters our desperation and secondly draws us into relationship, which is why he asks, who touched me? Now, we must not assume that Jesus doesn't actually know, as we shall see in a moment. After all, he's God. Why does he say that? Because he's drawing her out. Verse 32 to 33. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. The woman experienced power, but then she went into hiding. Isn't that interesting? Why? Perhaps it was fear of shame. Perhaps even though she experienced physically healing inside her body, socially she was still rejected. People may not believe her. They may not understand what has happened to her. And so she hides See, this woman is aware of his power. And then Jesus calls out for her. What is she expecting? We're told she has fear and trembling. Maybe she expected a scolding. We do not know. She wanted a miracle. But Jesus wanted something further. He insisted on relationship. Jesus insisted on clarity. I want you to notice that verse 33, she falls at his feet and tells him the whole truth. She told him the whole story. This is an important note because she herself needed this. Maybe it was that she had a somewhat superstitious thinking about Jesus' power, but Jesus reinterprets her situation, and he says it was an act of faith, which, as we'll see in a moment, is all about a personal relationship with God. Friends, here's why that's important. We were never created to have a consumer relationship with God. Hey, God, I need a little bit of this from you. I need a little bit of that from you. And God's like, oh, I'm a cosmic vending machine. Here you go. Put in your holy coins of obedience, and we're good. And you're like, all right, God, thanks. Next time I get a flat tire, I'll cry out for you again. He's like, hey, no problem. You have my number. Call me if you need me. That's often how we relate to God. It's often how we view God. But this is never what he has intended for us. See, Jesus will never allow you or me to believe that he's some sort of genie in a bottle. We want the miracle. He wants the relationship. And so I want you to see, friends, that Jesus turns a powerful encounter into a personal encounter. He not only enters into our desperation, he draws us into relationship. And that is what brings a deeper peace. He loves this woman. And he will not allow her to slip away and to continue to live in shame and be unknown. Nor 
Will he allow himself to remain anonymous? So he presses the issue by looking around so that when she leaves, she will leave not just knowing a powerful Savior, but a personal Savior. He is the one who heals, and he is the one who cares. Because true healing is not just about getting our needs met, but knowing and being known by God. And again, there's so much detail in this story. I want you to track with me. It is in this personal encounter that he makes the most important pronouncement of this whole story that not only brings health, but peace. Her healing was a window into a bigger picture. And he says in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. She had already been physically healed. She, she noticed that she was healed when power went out when she grabbed the hem of his garment. But Jesus had to give something more. He had to give her more clarity about what has actually happened so that she would truly go forth free. When the bleeding stopped, it doesn't say that she was saved. It says that she was made well. It is only after she comes into his presence at his invitation does he say, daughter, your faith has saved you. And the words of Jesus are significant. First, notice he uses a word of dignity. He says to this unknown woman, daughter, full restoration into the community of Israel. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. This woman has lived for 12 years as an outcast of society. Here comes Israel's Messiah, the King of Heaven, Son of God, with power to heal. And he says, daughter, you are in the family of God. No longer unclean. She is now not only free from physical pain, but free from fear. And she is reinstated into the life of the community. Her faith has saved her. That word salvation. Earlier, she was made well when the bleeding stopped. Physical healing. But it's when she comes into relationship with Jesus that he says, your faith has saved you. Salvation. And it goes further. He says then, go in peace, which speaks of shalom, which here is the New Testament word against an Old Testament backdrop, which speaks of salvation and, and wholeness and security and friendship and the salvation of God. It is when she comes into his presence with awe and with honesty. Remember, she invited him in to her story. She told the whole truth. Might I suggest to you that when you pray today, you tell Jesus the whole story. Because many of us tell him the short story. Well, God, it's just been hard. I don't know. Can you just heal me so I can just kind of get on with it? But because he loves you, 
and because he knows that our healing goes deeper than just whatever is on the surface, he draws us in that we might share the whole story so that we might experience the deepest healing. That's what's happening here. Go in peace. Which is a beautiful statement because it shows that Jesus doesn't only save us from something, he saves us to something. He not only saved this woman from her physical suffering, she saved her to or for peace, restoration, and community. It's beautiful. He enters into our desperation. He draws us into relationship. But, and here's why these stories are together, the saving of one meant the death of another. For the drama intensifies. I believe you looked at this miracle earlier this year, but I want you to see how they're connected. Everyone in verse 35 is in despair. It says in verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Because at this point, we might ask the question, what do we do when the door seems to be shut on our healing? The things you've prayed for, maybe in faith, maybe right here in church or with someone else or, or by yourself, and it seems like all you've gotten is a shut door, a diagnosis, a report coming back. Why are you bothering Jesus anymore with this? There may even be a small voice inside your head saying, you should just give up. You shouldn't bring your matters to Jesus anymore. Just bury that in the ground. Just, you know what, just, just forget about it. Or maybe it's that God is delayed. But notice Jesus does not rehearse what has happened or what might have been. There's one thing that Jairus can do. Shift the focus on to Jesus. And what happens when we do? That's the third lesson. Jesus enters into our desperation he draws us into relationship. And third, he strengthens small faith. He strengthens small, or you might even say weak, faith. So we've seen some of the similarities in these two stories, but what are the differences? Here, Jairus is named, but that woman was not. Jairus is a person of standing. She was an outsider. He has security. She does not. He came with confidence. She came in the shadows. He was a man of means with a household. She lost all of her money. You're meant to see the differences. Because here's the point. Her faith is the one that is held up as an example. Whereas his needs propping up. But the main lesson is this. Both can experience the strength of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Both can experience the strength of Jesus. Because what makes faith strong is where it is directed. The strength of faith rests on the object. And so in verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Do not be afraid, just believe. And I love this because it reminds me 
It reminds us that it is not the quantity of our faith that brings strength or hope or power or healing. It is the object of our faith, God himself. And just as he drew the woman into relationship, trusting relationship, he does so with the faltering faith of Jairus, to whom he simply says in verse 36, trust me. I love this because faith is not something Jairus has so much as something that has Jairus. (laughs) Therefore, even the smallest faith, the weakest faith, the most pathetic faith directed towards Christ will engage his power for his purposes. Because it's not about the quantity, it's about the object. See, here's why I think this is a big deal. I don't know how long you all have been Christians, but when I was a new Christian, I went to a Bible school. And it was there, in my first few years of the Christian life, that I learned about what we often call the great men and women of faith. And I went through a season where I read all these biographies. I went into the bookstore and I read biography after biography of these men and women who did great things for God. And I read them and I think, oh, if I would just have great faith like her, if I would just have great faith like him. But I started to believe that there were two tiers of Christians. There's like tier one elite level Christians and then there's coach Right? You know when you, like we just flew, right? And they always make you enter the plane where first class is. So that you can see where you are not sitting. Right? You take your children on, they're like, (gasps) and I'm like, that's not for you. And then you you pull the, the curtain back and it's like the Greyhound bus station, if you've ever ridden one of those. It's just chaos. And that's how I viewed the Christian life. Like some are elite tier one Christians like oh if they if she just prayed for me if he just prayed for me but as for me I have pathetic faith my prayer is like God I don't know it's just it's like whatever if you want to like I don't know do something maybe I don't, I don't know whatever amen that that's how I pray oftentimes hopefully that hasn't shattered your understanding of pastors, but that's real talk. I don't even know, Lord. But that is why I find such great comfort in this text. It is not the strength of the person who has faith. It is the strength of the person the faith is placed in. Maybe you're enduring great pain right now. Maybe there are fears threatening to control your life, anxiety threatening to control your life, but you need to know this, friend. The faith commended in Mark chapter 5 is not the faith of the bold. It is the faith of the broken. The faith of the desperate. Because ultimately, faith rests on Jesus himself. And what does Jesus do? And we must see this because your faith will be tested, however small or weak it is, in the midst of fear. This is true for the whole of the Christian life. The testing of faith will always take us farther than what we expected, but the result will be beyond what we could ever imagine. 
The woman simply wanted relief, but Jesus gave her an everlasting relationship. Jairus was looking for a reprieve, but Jesus was about to bring resurrection. Yet in the moment, he did not know. He thought the time had passed, but verse 37 and 40 tells us otherwise. Jesus did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with the people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went where the child was. Weeping and scoffing. And yet in the midst of this, Jesus says, she is sleeping. To be clear, this is not a medical judgment. It's a way of saying that death will not have the last word. Jesus will take her and raise her from the dead, but notice how. He says in these beautiful words, Talitha kum, dear child, wake up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this time, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus is facing death the greatest enemy, and humanity's greatest fear. And yet what he does is the very thing that ultimately heals our fear. And this is the last thing I want to say this morning. The truth about Jesus that heals our fears, he enters into our desperation, draws us into relationship, strengthens pathetic faith, which is good news for me. But lastly, he acts with power and love. He acts with power and love. Jesus is powerful enough to defeat death and yet so tender and loving as to take our hand and to speak to our hearts. If your life is in the hands of Jesus, then even death is but sleep. And in this scene, we have a picture of what is true for everyone who trusts in Jesus. He takes us by the hand, even through the valley of the shadow of death. The raising of this little girl points forward to a time when God will finally loose the grip that death has on all who trust in him. For though it is called the great enemy, the last enemy, Jesus will have the last word. And so how can we know that this is all true for us? Because what he did for these women is a foreshadowing of what he would do for us all when he went to the cross. Because when Jesus went to the cross, it meant that the saving of one meant the death of another a theme we see throughout Mark's gospel. The saving of me and you meant the death of Jesus. 
Because when Jesus died on a cross, he died in our place for our sin, even though he was perfect and sinless. He lost his power so that we could experience power. On the cross, we see power and love together, and it is through his death, providing a sacrifice for sin, and through his resurrection that we can be brought through even the darkest fears by granting us the greatest hope. And what we must remember is that unlike the woman's medical payments, which cost her everything and did nothing, placing our faith in Jesus Christ costs us nothing, but it cost him everything. And so we may not know why God seems to delay. But the answer to our question cannot be that God doesn't love us. The answer cannot be that he is not loving. And John and Peter were in that room. And I think they remembered this for the rest of their lives. For John the Apostle wrote in his first letter years later, there is no fear in love, 1 John 4, 18. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Whatever you're going through, you often interpret it, if you're like me, as punishment. I'm suffering. God didn't do this because he's, he's punishing me for my sin. He's punishing me for my sin. Listen, friend, if your trust is in Jesus, all of your punishment was taken on the cross. And so, though we may not know why the suffering is allowed, we know that he's using it and allowing it so that we become more and more like Christ, knowing who has the final say and the last word in the end. Christ has taken our punishment, removing the ultimate fear of rejection, the ultimate fear of separation from God in eternal death. His love heals our fear. So when we look to the cross, we know that God wants to know us and draw us to himself, forgive us, and to restore broken people. Knowing that you are loved, this morning, let Jesus take you by the hand and let us come to him because he enters into your desperate situation. He draws you into relationship, which is what truly saves you. He strengthens even the weakest, most pathetic of faith. And we experience healing because he has acted in great power and love when he died and when he rose again. So let us come to him this morning and be honest and tell him the whole story and allow his power to work and pray your fears. Because when you do, you are expressing faith. And for that reason, I think the Apostle Peter, who was there on that day, also said, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you see everything. You know the most intimate details of what is going on in our lives right now. It could be physical pain. 
financial hardship, relational difficulty, anxiety, fear. You see it all. And yet you call us to yourself that we might trust you. You draw us into a relationship with yourself because that is where we are going to find the peace that we need to go forth. And so, Father, I pray that this morning nothing would hold us back from telling you the whole story. Not that you need to know, but when we do, we're inviting you into it so that we might experience your peace and your healing. And I pray for those who are waiting and wondering what it is that you're doing in the waiting, that you would strengthen our feeble faith and that we would rest assured knowing that the answer cannot be that you don't love us. The answer cannot be that you're not using this for good because we see the cross and we say that you died for us in love, you rose for us in love, and you work all things together for good. So God, I pray that as we focus on you now in this time of response, that you would strengthen our faith and that we would experience the healing of fear. In Jesus' name.